And the reason Matthew's recording uh, these episodes in his gospel is for our benefit, so that we would see um, all the interactions that people have with Jesus and their misunderstanding of him in those interactions, that we would walk away with the appropriate understanding to be able to say, I know who Jesus is. I know what I am to know of him. Now, the particular thing we see here uh, is a delegation of uh, Pharisees and Sadducees that come up to meet him uh, from a south region uh, in Jerusalem. He's in the up north of Galilee where he does most of his ministry. And he's becoming um, a big deal. His fame is uh, spreading abroad. And it gets the attention of um, significant religious leaders in Jerusalem that they seek him uh, to ask him a very pointed question. The main point of this whole text we'll come to see is the commandments of Jesus Christ are meant to direct us to Christ so that we would love Christ. To not understand that is to miss everything. Matthew 15. It says this, that the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. That is, headquarters. These are important people. And they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, and why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, and their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, and this is always funny, I think. The disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And that defiles the person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual morality and theft and false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands 
does not defile anyone. In all of these episodes, we know that Jesus could not demonstrate his full glory in front of these people, lest that they would die in the very presence of God's holiness. And then there's another other side of the spectrum in which Jesus looks so incredibly common, being, you know, a carpenter's son and having brothers and sisters living in Nazareth, that everyone passes him by and barely can recognize that there's anything special about him. But really where a lot of these episodes of Jesus' life in the Gospels are right in the middle ground, where he is doing some pretty remarkable things. And he is saying some pretty remarkable words. And everyone's at least pausing to say, who is this man? When they want him to do a miracle, he doesn't. Because a miracle doesn't do anything if your heart can't believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. A miracle is just another excuse to not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what he did here? The heart, the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Again, whether it be miracles, signs, wonders, great teaching, great wisdom, and now here particularly in this interaction, it has to do with tradition, human tradition. And he sums it all up by saying, it is not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out. That's the reason he is here. That's the reason the gospel is the gospel. That's the reason Jesus Christ put on flesh and blood like us. So that he would come to redeem all of our humanity and working from the inward out to the very center of the center of the problem, which is the heart. For the heart is desperately wicked. And his list goes on. Out of the heart come the evil thoughts, the murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, and all false witness and slander. This is what defiles us. This is what changes our psyche, our mind, our consciousness, our intellect. That we can't perceive the glory of God, even though the glory of God is all around us. And we're told in Isaiah's vision that the angels continually sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The heavens and the earth are full of your glory. They see it. They see it all the time. It's so glorious that they have to cover their feet and their face. But even then, they still see it. But we can't perceive it, see. Because the problem is in here. It's, it's the internal perception of our own hearts that are twisted, distorted. We have a color uh, veil over our faces where everything looks blue. Um, but in God's glory, everything is red. And you can't see red because our very nature is red opposed. It is holiness opposed. It is God's glory opposed. Since the very creation of the world, Paul says in Romans, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen through everything has been made. But see, people don't see it and they worship idols. This is the problem. That he is the Lord of glory, even though he doesn't appear to us from time to time to be the Lord of glory. There's this one psalm. Uh, in the tradition of the church, the psalm has been um, meditated on a lot. It's beautiful. Because it's just mysterious. Just like Jesus in the Gospels. Mysteriously beautiful and wonderful. 
Psalm 24 says this. And people have talked about this psalm a lot. It says this. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then the watcher on the wall or the doors personified say, Who is this King of glory? And the psalm responds, The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The refrain happens again. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. That the king of glory may come in. And the response ensues. Who is this king of glory? And the psalmist responds. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. That's who Jesus is. The king of glory. But the question would be. If he's the king of glory. Why are you asking That's the mystery of the psalm. God can do whatever he might please. If the king of glory, distinct name of the holy, glorious presence of God, is seeking to go into his city, why should you ask? Shouldn't it be obvious? That's the nature of glory. A heavy, bright, shining, glorious light of God. So there always seemed to be a mystery in this psalm. Why are you asking? And why does the king of glory need permission to go into his own front door? Because there's been a hint, a mystery. That the glory of God is entering. Some have taken to be the ascension of Jesus Christ. That he's walking straight up in his incarnate glory into heaven. And he just doesn't look. He just doesn't look. He looks like a man. Like Isaiah and Daniel speak of. So the question they come to Jesus with here, because of course he just looks like a rogue rabbi teaching outside of the authority of Jerusalem. That is, just starting his own denomination without any theological credentials. This delegation comes and says, from the headquarters, Pharisees and scribes, why do your disciples, the ones that you're training in your rabbinical school, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands when they eat? And the beauty of it is, is Jesus' response to their question is, of course, just a question. And he says, why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your traditions? Why do you break the commands of God for your theological traditions? Goes right back at them with the same question. And he goes and says particularly this. God commanded you should honor your father and mother. The fifth commandment. But you circumvent or you make void that commandment. For the sake of your tradition. Saying that whatever is offered. The Korban law of uh, Judaism is that whatever is offered up to God is a vow given to God. Say, say a, a sum of money is given to uh, build the temple or do something. That that money is vowed up to God and it cannot be used anywhere else lest you break the vow. But that principle of how rabbinic Jewish uh, tradition would associate with vows that you could vow something to God, Jesus comes and says, 
But you can't do that because God has said no. And God's authority is superior than your human traditions. That was the debate at the time. That was the rub in which he was trying to resist them. And I love the story. Um, is, is, it's, just, it's amazing to me that the disciples come to him and say, um, did you know? It's like Jesus, it's like they're like, does he have social awareness? Is, do you know that you offended them when you said that? And, then, and I can imagine Jesus being like, so you mean like when I called them all hypocrites and quoted Isaiah to them? Yeah, I guess they probably would have been offended by that. I imagine that's just like, so in, in, in proper exposition of this word from Christ, I would like from the outset, because I'll do something a little different this Sunday, is work through a series of items as opposed to maybe a more rhetorical structure. It's just a list. This is, more like, this is going to be more like a Puritan sermon. So I'm just saying that up front. It's like a list, like point one, point two, point three. The, the, the Puritan sermon would have like 30 points, and then you'd have dinner, and then you'd come back for the second part. Now, of course, I'll tell you, there's not that many points. But I, what, I, what I intend to do here, a little atypical for me, is to press. This is the pastoral job of pressing. You, you, you pay me to offend you. That's actually part of my job description. Like, if I'm doing a good job, you should be offended by the Word of God. Like, if I'm, if I'm expounding Jesus' words, and Jesus' words offend those who heard them, and if I can some way, you know, I'm all clean cut and I put a tie on and I can finagle his words and make it just seem sweet to you and it never offends your palate at all, maybe I'm the problem. You see, maybe I'm the in-between that's screwing this up because there should be an offense to the word of God. Because I will tell you one thing. This was not a first century Pharisee problem alone. Let's operate on that assumption. That it wasn't just the first century Pharisees that happen to just have a problem with human traditions overriding the word of God. I think this is our problem as well. And it was an old problem. That's why Jesus quotes Isaiah. And he says, ha 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 ha, Isaiah 29. People's hearts are far from me. In their lips they serve me. Because they teach his doctrines, the commandments of men. So if it was a problem for Isaiah's day. And it was a problem for Jesus' day. Perhaps it's still a problem for our day. I'll do this by just looking at the first five commandments of the Ten Commandments that God gave. And showing how, in certain ways, human tradition, this is our tendency to take human tradition, human um, acceptability or, or, or expectation, culture expectation, and what, what always is the case is it is used to undermine the Word of God and contradict the Word of God. It's a tendency always. First commandment particularly is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, as Christians, we know that that's true. The commandments follow, no other gods before me. The second commandment is to not have any idols, to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The fourth commandment is to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the fifth commandment is to honor your father and mother, the one Jesus addresses here. As Christians, we know the first one, no other gods. Makes sense. But see... The way this works is there's various traditions and perspectives that go unmatched or unchecked in which that word rings hollow. It, it has a void to it, right? 
Now, there's many ways to look at this, but one I would say is this. Hundreds of years ago, two, three, that is in the late 17th, 18th century, we had this thing people speak of as an enlightenment. This is the tradition, the human tradition of the enlightenment. Seeds back then were planted. They were intellectual seeds of man-made human autonomy in which Immanuel Kant's treatise on what is the enlightenment said, to be brave in your rational autonomous thinking. Be brave to reason. Sounds good. But what he meant by that was to reason absolutely apart from any other authority except the gray matter between your ears. Well, that's high-handed rebellion. That's going back to the garden and taking of the tree of knowledge to be your own. And those seeds were planted hundreds of years ago, but now they have grown to be large oak trees. And we don't understand that in our culture we experience a conflict between faith and reason. Now, I don't have a time machine, but I have read historians. And based on their life of scholarship and work is the reality that your experience of should I choose science or faith? Should I choose my own reason or trust in Christ? That is a false dichotomy. That never existed only a few hundred years ago. You never separated your work from your worship. You never separated your education from Christ. So the commandment is, have no other gods before me on Sunday. No. There's a human tradition we have, secular humanism, that makes that, that commandment Hollow. It, it sucks it of all its import and power. So for a child to go from kindergarten to 12th grade, he or she will spend 13,000 hours in instruction. In a particular education system that has taken that first commandment and said, no. God might be the God, Yahweh is the one true God, but is he not only also the God of physics and gravity? Is he not the God of empirical investigation and the logical laws of induction? Is he not the God of the uniformity of math? Is not his own infinity the grounding of the infinity of integers? See, everything we could ever know is tied back to him. That there is only one true God. And you should have no other gods at all. In the math class, or the science class, in the philosophy class, or even when you go to the bathroom. He really is the Lord. And the first commandment says, there will be no other God. And you may not even put yourself as your own autonomous, enlightened man, reading Immanuel Kant and all the rest, thinking that you may reason by yourself without any proper grounds, forgetting that the grounds on which your feet stand is the ground that God made. This is our human tradition. We, we swim in it. We don't notice it. But it makes void the commands of God. And the same is true for work. The average adult will spend one-third of his or her life working in some capacity. 90,000 hours of your life will go to this. We are not permitted to take one-third of our life and not submit it to Jesus Christ. That would be taking the first commandment and making it nothing. 
the commandment is for all of life, that there will be no other God. But the case is, of course, when you're at work, you better not mention Jesus. If you offend this client, we'll lose money. You could lose your job. Don't pray at work. This is the company's time. Is it? That's the question. Is it really? That's, see how that seeps in. Is it really the company's time? One third of your life, 90,000 hours. The traditions of men is in our, our tradition in this company is we don't talk about Jesus. And Jesus would respond, you have a fine way of making the commandments of God void for the sake of your human traditions. It's alive and well, this temptation. For the commands of Christ, for the commands of Christ are to direct us to Jesus Christ so that we would love him. Love him with one third of our life. How about the second commandment? The second commandment says that you should have no other images. You should not make any images or graven images. It says this in Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make an idol and, a, and or a similitude of anything in heaven or on earth. It goes on to say, the next verse, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. That is, you cannot have any image in which you are directing devotion toward it. Now, we know, of course, there is tremendous church tradition in Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And this is the thing, like, I'm not trying to misrepresent those traditions, but that's exactly what this commandment is talking about. In the ancient world, this commandment is coming from an ancient practice in which they lived in a world of animism in which they had a very strong connection between the physical world and the spiritual world. And that if they thought, if you could tinker with uh, the physical world and make an image similar to representing some type of characteristic of the God you want to worship, that you can manipulate that God in some type of uh, thing that's similar to like voodoo. When like, you know, in the, in the TV shows when people make a voodoo doll, they make it look like that other person. And then when you mess with that voodoo doll, it messes with the other person. Well, you see, that's funny now we have it in TV shows. That was actually how the ancient world worked. If you could make an image of an idol, of some type of God, you could manipulate the real God over here. You could get access to that God through the idol. That's, that was their whole way of thinking. Now the reality is, this is the, this is the, this is the amazing thing. The reality is, that's actually what people do in the name of Christianity. They make icons, images of saints, images of all these things. And that's, that's good art. It's fine. Have an icon of some person from history. That's great. But then to bow down and to meditate upon it, to try to have some type of spiritual experience through that image, dear God, that's literally what it's talking about, not doing. And so Jesus Christ would simply say, you have a fine way of invalidating the commandments of God for the sake of your human traditions. You see how this works. This is a common pattern in all of our life. And we'll see that really the reason this happens is because we're running from him. Because when the commandments come to us, they cut us. Does this bother you? Does this not bother you when you hear this? From out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual morality and theft and false witness and slander. Have you not felt that bubble up inside of you? 
That list, don't you know that list all too well? We make traditions, extra rules that are simple and easy to follow so that we don't feel convicted from the real rules of God. We do this to make our conscience feel better, but it's actually just lying to ourselves. And so Jesus is, of course, the wonderful physician he is, saying, now listen here, don't get into all this stuff. It's all about your heart and you're running from me, just like everyone is when he does his miracles or his teaching. The third commandment, I told you it was going to be a Puritan sermon here. Thank you. uh, Thank you for entertaining the the Puritan uh, side of me here. Um, I, I will, I'll get it all in my system. Next week, we'll be back. Uh, number three, he says, particularly this is the third commandment, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, I particularly, just a few weeks ago, had a wrestle with this one. I was watching a stupid show, and it was interesting, and I kept watching it. And actually enjoyed it. It was a nice digression from thinking about the real things of life. But they kept saying my Lord's name in vain. And I said, in my mind, I confess to you. I'll ignore that. And then did it again. And then did it again. See, there's a, there's a human tradition we have course, don't watch the show anymore. There's a human tradition we have. It's the tradition of Hollywood. Is that Jesus Christ's name must be blasphemed at least once every 30 minutes in a good movie. Now, we have a fine way of saying, yes, that's in the movie, and those actors, that is, you know, adults pretending They are blaspheming your name, but I'm not. Leviticus 24. There was an Egyptian man who blasphemed the name. We're told that all who were in his vicinity and heard such a wicked thing pronounced across human lips laid their hands upon him, and the congregation stoned him to death. Just because that's not how it is dealt with now does not make it any less serious. See, we have a fine way of not making it serious because of our human traditions. There's a tradition in Hollywood in which it's okay. Now, can you imagine to be entertained by that? That is in your free recreation time. You watch an adult play pretending by cursing the real God. And we say as Christians, well, that's just the way it is. No, 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 it's not, though. That's the thing. That's called a human tradition. That's not the way it is. Can you imagine coming to Jesus Christ and saying, can you imagine his response for saying, now, Lord Jesus, my Savior, the most precious name that's ever been brought upon my lips, when I'm really tired, I mean tired, it's been a hard week, and I just need to recreate I need to recreate and get my mind off the real world and just be entertained for a little bit. I spend my time and my money to pay for some type of subscription or cable access so that I can watch adult children play acting 
And when they do, they speak your holy name in a blasphemous, derogatory way, and they use it as a play, as an act. But it's not me doing it. Would Jesus not say, you have a fine way of breaking the commandments of God for the sake of your American traditions? Do you see? The commandments of God, of Christ, are to direct us to Christ. All these commandments are there for one thing, to bring you to him. How how can you watch when people are blaspheming his name and then feel like you should be honoring Christ? Right? The commandments of Christ are to direct us to Christ so that we would love him, that our hearts would be lifted up and exalted in him, that we would be full of joy in him. That's what these commandments are for. They're roadways, they're highways, they're pathways to lead us to the Lord. It's all about love. This fourth commandment is to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Now, whatever access or leftover of the Sabbath makes it into our time, it's this principle that there is a time, once in seven, it says, particularly, to worship, to worship God. That that's given for us. It's for our good. All these commandments are what? Is it burdensome to say, Jesus, I love you? That's all these commandments are. Commandments of Christ to direct us to Christ so we could just love Christ. And of course, this is, a, this is a good one. Two months ago, Christmas 2022, not too hard to remember that one. It happened to fall on that day. It was the same Sunday as Christmas. But I don't remember any commandment about Christmas. Someone just made the day up. It's just a human tradition. You see? Honor the Lord because you're supposed to just worship him because you love him. Well, yes, I could honor the birth of Jesus Christ, but I can't do it on the birth of Jesus Christ day, which is Christmas, which we made up, and I can't worship him that day because it's Christmas. Do you see? I actually watched an article. I read an article in the Gospel Coalition where uh, someone was arguing they're a pastor of a small church plant, um, and they were arguing to say they were going to shut down their church for Christmas that year um, because... There weren't a lot of people, and all their key people were leaving to travel with family for Christmas, which is a wonderful Christmas tradition. And if that is what worship was, then they're right. It is. If if it's about us, if this whole commandment thing of of coming together to worship Jesus Christ because he's worthy and no other reason, if it was all about us, then, well, yes, of course, let's just stop. But what if these commandments are about him? What if it's actually about loving him? Then there's no reason. Whether one person or two people show up. See, we have a fine way of breaking the commandments of God for the sake of our, even our Christmas traditions. When really these commandments are to direct us to Christ so that we would love Christ. That's what all these commandments are about. And so Jesus deals with them at the heart of the issue. This fifth commandment is the one that they actually come to him with. Why, he says, do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your traditions? The fifth commandment is this. God has commanded that you honor your father and mother. And then he goes so far as quoting Exodus 21 where it says, Whoever reviles his father and mother shall surely die. 
But you say, Jesus accuses them and says, you say to tell your father and mother that whatever you should gain from me, I have actually devoted it to God. Therefore, you have nothing to give your father or mother. There's no social security system. Uh, your parents are older. What are you going to do? Take care of them in their retirement age. Take care of them when they have no one to take care of themselves. That was a very strict command, particularly coming to the fifth commandment of God. And so people would give their money away and not take care of their parents. And Jesus says, this is exactly how it works. You will not take on the responsibility that God has for you out of love and you find a human tradition to get away. And so he quotes Isaiah 29 and says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, This people honors me with their lips, and their hearts are far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So in that time, these people, the Pharisees particularly, they had a very strong, robust, oral tradition. It's something that we're not even aware of. As you're just reading through the scriptures, when you see the word Pharisee, you think of them as being those who are um, very devoted to the Bible and, and very serious about studying scripture, which is true. But that's not the whole picture. They had a very strong oral tradition. They believed that there was a teaching passed down from Moses all the way through Sinai, that they had a non-written law an oral law, that the teaching of the elders were very, very high and authoritative, almost on par with Scripture. At the present moment, if you were to speak to anyone studying in actual modern-day rabbinic Judaism, they would say there are two laws. There's the written law and the oral law. This is what Jesus is addressing in his day. Now, in his day, it wasn't written. It's what's called the Mishnah now. About 200 years after Jesus all that oral law, the oral tradition of all the Pharisees was put together and compiled in a book called the Mishnah. If you actually go to the Mishnah, one section, there's one called the Nidarim, which just means vows. It actually talks about breaking the fifth vow, that is the fifth commandment, to not honoring your father and mother because of a vow that you've made. And it speaks about a case of a man who actually excluded his father because of a previously made vow. Do you realize that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here? Jesus is addressing an oral law that eventually came to us 200 years later, codified in the Mishnah. He's addressing a real issue in which people were taking their own self-made, inflated tradition and religious experiences and words and putting them up on par with the word of God. This is deep within the rebellious psyche of men. Everyone does this. Everyone does this. It's a common problem. That's why in the Reformation and the Reformers, particularly the Reformed Church, we say, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Stop it. Stop messing with the word of God and making it invalid. It is the word of God for us. Inspired by his prophets and his word. To mess with that is to invalidate the whole thing. This is the problem of all problems when it comes to any other religion. For example, if you pay for a subscription to Disney Plus, that's good. Or Spotify Plus. Or Apple TV Plus. But if you want to know what a cult is, a cult is nothing more than Bible Plus. It's the Bible, and we have the Book of Mormon. There's the Bible, 
and we have the traditions of the watchtowers and Jehovah Witnesses. Particularly, particularly, there is the Bible and Roman Catholic dogma. This must be understood. Again, this is a Puritan sermon. Let me become puritanical for a moment. The Catholic Catechism, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, defines Scripture and tradition as being both equally valid. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound, I don't know, like the Pharisees with Jesus? It says this, sacred scripture, this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, part one, article two, sacred scripture is a speech of God as put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. Good, thumbs up. Second line, holy tradition transmits the word of God to the successors of the apostles so that many Faith, that it may faithfully preserve and expound and spread abroad all of this in preaching, preaching, oral, in the speaking. So they say, Scripture, Word of God inspired, good, thumbs up. Don't do, the, don't do the Disney Plus on me. They do. Scripture plus, plus, holy tradition. How to put that in there. Transmits the Word of God to the successors of the apostles so that it may faithfully preserve and expound all this through the preaching, oral, oral tradition. Now, how do you know? It goes on to say that there is only one word of God. And this is how the Catholic Catechism defines the word of God. You must see this. It's very important. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up the single sacred deposit of the word of God. Do you hear that? If you ask them, Catholic theologian, what is the word of God? Well, it's the Bible plus sacred tradition. That together is the word of God. So every time they say the word of God, they don't mean the word of God as you would think they mean the word of God. The word of God unified by the Bible and sacred tradition. And so the question naturally is, because it very often does, when is the tradition right? First tradition of the church oftentimes contradicts scripture. Their answer, ready on the men for that, is the authentic interpretation of the word of God. Whether it is written in its written form or in the form of tradition is entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone, sola ecclesia. Formers say, sola scriptura, scripture alone. They have a sola. They don't have a two. They have a one. And the one is sola ecclesia. The church alone may mend what is scripture and tradition. And they will tell you what is true. Sounds very much like the Pharisees that Jesus didn't have a minute for. Very much like the Pharisees who loved their oral tradition and went to Jesus threatening him. Why don't you hold to the traditions of the elders? And Jesus says, because I don't care. Because you're just, you're just men made of dust. You have no word of God. And that same arrogance and hubris of religious 
Pride is right there at the center of the Catholic Church. Now this is different than speaking about Catholics, who I myself was one, Catholic private school, I have many families. We all have many we love as Catholics. I'm speaking particularly of these dogmas, what it is in their own confession. This is terrible. The task, it says, of this interpretation is trusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, that is the Bishop of Rome. Now, how could this possibly go off the rails? Well, 1854, the Immaculate Conception, Pope Pius IX simply just said, this is dogma. Jesus is, uh, Mary is sinless. Where'd you get that? I made it up in between my breakfast and the bathroom break. Okay, no early church has ever acknowledged that. Ignatius, Athanasius, where, where can you find this doctrine is not there? Pope, Paul, Pope John Paul calls Mary the co-redemptrix. Saint Alphonse de Liguori, he is a saint canonized in the church, and he is considered a doctor of the church. That is, his, this book, The Glories of Mary, has been translated in multiple languages and published across the whole world. And I have to read it for you to so understand. The danger of what Jesus has went and pulled the little seed of oral tradition and human reasoning and pulled it out there in Matthew 15. And if we re- disregard this one teaching, it produces the most wickedest weeds in the church. And this is, this is blasphemous what I'm ready to read. But you understand it's coming from a saint of the church who is considered a doctor of the church. In the glories of Mary, he says this, At the command of Mary, all obey. Oh, I'm just starting. At the command of Mary, all obey. Even God. She is omnipotent. This is a doctor of the church who is canonized as a saint. This isn't just some random Catholic on the internet. This is what they believe. She is omnipotent, for she is the queen according to all the laws. She enjoys the same privileges as the king. And since the son's power also belongs to the mother, this mother is made omnipotent as by the son's omnipotence. Wicked blasphemy. See, the heart of the matter, closing, is the matter of the heart. What goes into a man does not defile him. It's what comes out. You have to react to the commandments of Jesus Christ in one of two ways. You let his commandments cut you and convict you so that you might confess them to Christ and love him and find direct communion with him by the Spirit and the Word. Or, when these commandments come to you, they cut you, they convict you, but they produce a callousness upon your conscience, and you have to rub the balm of human tradition all over it, to placate your bittered soul. 1 Timothy 4.2, Paul particularly warns of this, whose consciences have been seared, calloused. They are ignorant of Christ's commands. They are ignoring them. Therefore, he says, they forbid marriage and require abstaining from certain foods, human traditions. How, where do they come? Their consciences have been seared as if, 
A hot iron has been put to the nerves of their very soul that they can't feel or know God. And so they make up their own traditions to make themselves feel pious and devout and holy. But they have no communion with the holy God because they took God's commands and instead of responding to them with contrition and faith and turning to Christ, they resisted them and became hard and calloused and and, and sensitive. Closing, I want to tell you a story about two masons. And I mean just masons who work on stones. There was an old man. He was a mason uh, for many years. And he worked hard all day. uh, With brick and block and stone and mortar. He worked with his hands. And he worked well. But he never wore any gloves as he worked. Year after year, year after year. Building all these calluses. He came home to his wife. And he tried to love his wife. To hold her face. But she turned away. See his hands were like. The grid of sandpaper running against her. And he's so calloused. And unsensitive that he couldn't even feel her hair. In his hands. He had no way of loving her. There was a young mason. Who only worked but a few days. And he worked hard. He laid his brick and his block, his stone, with his mortar. He chiseled the stone, but the stone also chiseled his hands. He came home to his wife, to love his wife, and he went to grab her face to kiss her. And his hands were like burning little burrs into the side of her cheeks. And she said, wear gloves. So the next day, he wore gloves. And he worked, and he came home, and he loved his wife all his life. You see, the commands of God come, and they cut you, and they afflict you, and they hurt you. Put on Christ. He was made in an image like us. He was made. He fitted himself for us. So that we would fit in him. This whole gospel of Matthew is nothing more than the incarnation of the son of glory. Now if you get convicted or cut by his commandments. Then be found in him. Put on him. And love him. That's the point of the cutting. That's why you are afflicted. To find Christ. Not to become callous and bitter and lose all love of Christ. Be lost in this own human tradition in which there is a whole tradition of coming through the back door of Zion through Mother Mary's bedroom chamber. Go to Jesus, you see. That's the human tradition. The callousness of the human heart. For he was cut for us on that cross so that we might live in him. In love. Let us pray. Father God. Lord, we thank you. That you are the Lord of glory. And we thank you Lord. That if the glove fits. We can put it on. That you have made yourself like us. So that we might be found in you. Lord though you cut us. It is only for our good. Lord we thank you. That we have this great love for you. And that we would always know. That your commandments. Are to drive us to Christ so that we might love Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your wonderful commandments, which are not 
the machinations of men, the very word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.